So we are finishing up the book of Genesis a year ago or so we started this. And um, who thought we would still be here anyways after everything going on in the world? So we got a few cross-references again in keeping with the, the customs around here on Wednesday nights. And again, God's word is alive and it gives life. So let's just read through 50, and then we'll come back, go over a little bit. So then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him, going back. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him and kissed him. And then Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, who, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. And now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the house of Pharaoh, the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself, in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. And so Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. And then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning and the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. And therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And so his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field uh, from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Well, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers for their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
And so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And the Lord said to his brother, and, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And thus ends chapter 50. So Joseph has Jacob embalmed, and what that basically means, spices, for burial. took a number of days to do. I don't know if it's the same as it is these days and how they do things, but, um, but Joseph and his brothers then mourn for their father, Jacob. Now, anyone who loses uh, the one they love is going to mourn. Sooner or later, that loss, that loneliness, and uh, that emptiness that's there because you lost someone that you know and love um, many can be inconsolable because it's devastating, and they can be devastated. And this really does get to the real heart of the matter for many people, and it really gets to the heart of the matter uh, for believers, you know, because is there hope? Is there life after death? If you want to turn to our first one, First Thessalonians. And just a little sidebar here, seeing as how we're talking about mourning. Yeah, they all went. All of Pharaoh's household, um, servants, prominent people, um, leaders and elders in all of Egypt. And this was a great mourning uh, as they went up to the land of Canaan. But in uh, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, what about you and me when we lose a loved one? But concerning, uh, where am I? 13 through 18. Um, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, referring to being dead. In the New Testament, uh, when the saint passes away or goes to be with the Lord, he calls it sleep. And it's not death. It's, uh, you know, we've talked about it here before, you don't die, you just move, and you move to a very good place, the place the Lord has been preparing for us. And um, so uh, for this, we say to you that by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, which by no means precede those uh, who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, speaking of the rapture. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord, and you can underline those, because that's really the key there for us in encouragement. And therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, when you lose a loved one, there's sorrow. There's got to be. Yeah, you know, and... and um, uh, I'm sure most of us here have lost somebody in their families. And as such, you know the feeling that all of a sudden you're not, they're not there anymore. You're, and it could be if it's a close spouse, you're alone. 
and you don't have that companionship that you had. But for them, for the one that went on to be with the Lord, we don't sorrow for them. They're, they're with the Lord. They're in, you know, it's a comfort for us to know where they are, you know, and they're not uh, suffering. They're not, uh, uh, as believers, they are raised with the Lord, raised with Him. But we do mourn, and yet we have that hope. So verses 4 through 6, back in Genesis, um, Joseph speaks to Pharaoh about burying his father in the land of Canaan. Now, actually, he speaks to his servants, and his servants speak to Pharaoh. Now, Jacob had gone to Egypt when he was 130 years old, and he lived there 17 years. He died at 147 years. So Pharaoh certainly knew. And it talks about in the previous chapter that, that the Jews, the Hebrews, prospered. They were living in the land of Goshen and they were growing. There was multitudes, the, the animals, the, the Lord was blessing them and, the, and they did prosper. And as we read, Joseph saw his kids raised up and his grandkids raised up on his knees. And so after 17 years in Egypt, Joseph uh, dies. And so, um, and he sleeps. It says that he goes to his, his uh, to Abraham, to his People. He's gathered to his people. But during this time, obviously they prospered. Certainly Pharaoh kept up with Joseph. And, and remember that Pharaoh was blessed by Jacob. When Jacob came, he was brought before Pharaoh, and he was blessed by um, Jacob. And he would know, and he would, you know, when his servants told him, he says, whatever you need, take what you need, and go and do this. So in verses 7 through 14, all of Israel... And all the prominent and elders of Egypt, together with all the house of Joseph, all his brothers, they go up to Canaan to bury Jacob. No one stays behind except the children. And it's a great assembly going back to Canaan. Now, they go back up, and it's similar in when the, during the Exodus, they don't go up right through Gaza and that area. They go around, they come in through, either for the reason that's where the, the highway, the main highway of trade was, but they're still just to the east of the Jordan. They haven't come back in to the, um, the area there that he finally is buried. And that's when all the Canaanites see him. They're still over in this city of, um, what's it called? Uh, verse, uh, well, I lost it. Atad, okay, which is beyond the Jordan. In other words, still to the other side. And so they... Uh, all the Canaanites are looking around. They're seeing this huge bunch of people. And, I mean, all of Israel, except for the little ones and all the elders and all the prominent people of Egypt, and all, this, all of Pharaoh's servants directly, they all knew Joseph. And so all the Canaanites are seeing this great assembly, and they name that place Abel Mizraim because of, they see all the Egyptians, and they literally called it the Meadow of Egypt is what that means. And because of this great assembly that's passing through and then it says that Joseph, uh, or, uh, Joseph and, his, and his brothers, um, Jacob's sons, did as he commanded them to do to bring him to the tomb of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Now verses uh, 15 through 21, we'll probably be hanging out here for most of the time. Um, on the way back to Egypt, Joseph's brothers fear, they're afraid. Now, we studied that word fear a couple weeks ago. There's different kinds of fear. There's uh, different meanings for that word uh, fear. One is that absolute terror to where you shake and tremble and, and uh, you're 
completely confounded. You don't know what to do with yourself. And then there's a fear where you just are standing there in awe of something that is so great and above you and beyond you that you don't know how to, uh, you know, what to do other than to just stand in awe. Well, that's what this one is. His brothers were afraid. They were standing in awe because they realized Joseph is this powerful. All these Egyptians came up with him. And so he, he uh, has to comfort them. And so, uh, you know, perhaps means if. His brothers are saying if he's been hateful. And now that word hateful there is another one. Um, there's a couple words for hateful. Um, the one, this word appears six times only in the, in the Old Testament. And what it really means is not such like a hate as in the type of person that just hates. It's, it's more of a, they're bearing a grudge. That kind of, we're not going to let go of what we got on you type of attitude. They're afraid that Joseph is bearing that grudge for what they did to him. They're afraid that he's retaining that animosity uh, against them. And what the word literally means is it's somebody who cherishes that animosity towards somebody. It's kind of interesting to look at it. Now, obviously that other word uh, for hate means it's really just that it's a person or an enemy who is just that type of person. They are full of that kind of thing. It's got nothing to do with the grudge or revenge. It's just got to do with hate. And then they say maybe he's going to repay a return on us, reciprocate. Maybe he's just been dwelling on this and mulling this over. He's going to pay recompense. And they acknowledge the evil that they did and the pain that they caused. Now, it's interesting. They say, you know, remember Joseph? Uh, Jacob told us to tell you this. Now, I don't read that anywhere. <laughs> it's, they're kind of saying, you know, Dad says he got to forgive us, buddy. You know, well, you know, we don't read that he said that anywhere other than maybe when he blessed them, he talked about all of them. I mean, Joseph clearly had the power to destroy these guys. He was, you know, still likely the second most powerful man in Egypt, even though it's been 17 on years since the, or uh, 10 years since the end of the famine. But, um, no, actually it's closer to 17 because um, uh, um, Jacob came down towards the end of the famine. But anyway, uh, that is this hateful thing that they're expecting. They're expecting uh, for him to reciprocate, to pay them back for the evil that they did. And it's at least intimidating to them, knowing how powerful Joseph is, that if he seeks you know, revenge, it'd be nothing for him to wipe them out. Now, to make a little application there, you know, holding a grudge... Um, retaining animosity, keeping record of wrongs. What was Joseph like? Everything that we read about him. First thing we learned about Joseph is he was loved by Jacob. He was Rachel's, who Jacob loved, firstborn. And uh, so uh, Joseph was loved by Jacob and early on hated by his brothers. But it says he feared God. Remember when Potiphar's wife wanted to compromise him? He wouldn't because he feared God. And then he waited, I don't know if it was all patiently, but he waited in prison until the butler finally remembered, this is Joseph's nature, this is who he is. Um, you know, he was faithful to his father Jacob to bring him safely during that severe famine. And, you know, Joseph had brought them all from Egypt. And he, when they saw him, 
remember early on, he finally revealed himself to him. He cried, he cried out loud. He couldn't hold himself, he couldn't contain himself. And they wept together for a long time and embraced one another a long time. You know, they're forgetting that. They're forgetting how much he loved them and how much he missed them when he was in Egypt so that when he did reveal himself, as we studied a few weeks ago, it was just a great rejoicing. It was just a weeping of, of great joy um, on Joseph's part. You know, but, you know, he had arranged them from oldest to youngest when he sat them down. This is Joseph's nature. He loved his brothers and all. And so when his brothers fear that he would seek revenge on them, he just weeps. He weeps because here these guys have been carrying around this burden of knowing that they did something evil and they haven't really yet been, you know, judged for it necessarily. And they kind of are forgetting his nature. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, you know, it is a powerful thing. You know, he just forgot about it. It wasn't even on his mind. It hadn't been ruminating around in his mind all this time. But it's such a powerful thing to take that burden off of somebody else. I mean, if you think about it, and you've been somebody who's wronged somebody, and they come around, and I wasn't even thinking about that. I forgot all about that. Don't worry about it. Forget it. It's such a load. And to see and have the ability, like Joseph did, to say that to these guys, it just causes them to weep. He realizes, oh, you guys, no, we're not throwing that on you. We're not laying that on you. We're just... Um, we just love you, and don't worry about it. And he goes on to say, but in 1 Corinthians 6, just a couple here passages about, and we're going to get into a little bit more about forgiveness, but some of the principles, verses 1 through 11, if you do have a matter against a brother, you know, do any of you having that go to the law before the unrighteous people and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And do you not know that we shall judge angels of much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? In other words, the secular courts or whatever. I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, the question. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Come on, guys. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. And here's the thing. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong, and you cheat, and you do these things to your own brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, or sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And, you know, I'll let you do that word study on each of those on your own, if you'd like. Um, um, and such were some of you. And that's the one, if you haven't circled in your Bible, that's a good one. And such were some of you. And we're going to get into that a little bit more as we go. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's rich uh, for us to just revel in the fact, you know, not with any kind of cockiness. When I mean revel, I mean what a joy it is, what a comfort it is to me to know 
that in him I've been sanctified and I've been washed and uh, justified in the Lord and by the Spirit of God. And the thing of it is, what are you doing taking somebody else to court, especially the worldly court, if it's a brother? You know, we live in this, you know, in the century we live in or whatever you want to think, however you want to think about it, but ever since uh, the state married into the church back in, what, the 3rd century, um, the uh, Alexander, whoever it was, he couldn't beat the church, so he decided to, to uh, make the church the state church. From that day forward, there's been all kinds of, of, of religion and different denominations. And all you've, in America, we had churches on every corner. I grew up in a town that had a church, a bar, two farms, and a truck driver. That's all who lived there. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you can look it up. It's probably not the same anymore. The church and the bar are still there, and there's a few more houses, but that's Wisconsin, I guess. Um, but the, the whole idea of having one body of believers in any given town so that they would say Timothy was a pastor at, at Ephesus. So if you're an Ephesian and you got a beef with another brother who's an Ephesian, you know, you could at least go to Timothy or you could, what Paul is saying here is you should take the littlest one among you and let him judge among you. He would be able to tell. You guys are... You're forgetting that you have, you know, eternal life, that you've been sanctified and justified, and that the Spirit of God is working in you all these things. And so, what are you doing? And so, these days that we live in, it's a little different. You know, you got all different kinds of churches and fellowships, and there's all kinds of compromise in the church and doctrinally speaking. Besides all that, if you want to turn to uh, just chapter 13 in Corinthians, uh, verse five. Uh, you all know chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is the love chapter. And just to zero in on verse 5, you know, what's the motivation? In light of all that God's done for us, and we'll be getting to that some more too. Um, but here's love. You know, all these things. Um, I can't really just leave them out. Um, verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. And this is kind of where things start to come up that cause division, you know, envy and, and being puffed up. You know, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. You know, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And then he goes on to talk about the subject of the chapter, the, the prophecies and the things that uh, in chapters 12 and 14. But what did Joseph, he loves them. He's not holding this against him. You know, um, what is it? Uh, love does not uh, keep a record of wrongdoing in the King James. Um, and I knew that was in there somewhere. Where did I see it? But, you know, if you have the King James, it's love keeps no record of wrongdoing. Now, Joseph, if you go um, back to Psalm 130, um, Joseph says to these guys, you, you guys meant it for evil. He knows what they did and what they were doing. He hadn't, hadn't been thinking about it. He hadn't been mulling it around in his mind. But, um, you know, he, he knows that, that they had meant it for evil. Now, 
the word forgive um, in, in the Hebrew means literally to lift and support with enduring, uh, to bear up, but also the idea to carry off, to take it away, and all of this is continuous. In other words, you don't forgive somebody once. You forgive them for whatever it is you're forgiving them by supporting them, lifting them up, not in their sin, not to misunderstand, but in the way that you're taking off of them that burden. And that's what Joseph did to these guys. They're carrying that burden and wondering, man, is it going to come back and bite us? And like we said, he just wept because he knew that they were carrying this thing and he hadn't even given it a thought. So Joseph says, am I in the place of God? So God is the one who meant this for good. And Joseph knows it. And he says, who am I to take this into my own hands? Now, the greatest reason for us to forgive is because we are not in the place of God, right? I mean, I, I could maybe see anybody here and say, gee, this or that, you might have made a mistake. I don't know anything about any of you all the way down to the depths of your heart, just like you don't know me down to the depths of my heart. But God does, and God has forgiven. And God is the one who knows all of this, and it's up to him. And, and he deals in our lives, and he turns things around for good for us. And... Um, you know, so the greatest reason that we are to forgive is because we're not in the place of God. I mean, you think of anything anybody did to you, they stole from you. Well, who, who wrote the commandment, thou shalt not steal? That's not something you I ever came up with. God wrote that commandment, you know. And so, just as an example, it's his law that was broken, not some law of man that we have any right in our own to, to execute judgment on this, you know, and leave these things for the Lord to do, because he will. We studied that last week a little bit. So only God knows the entire matter of any situation, and he'll judge it perfectly. For us, we have Romans 8.28. We know all things work to the good, even that, even that. And what? For the good of them that love God and those who are called according to his purpose. You know, if we're walking in the things we should walk in and all that, um, everything in our life is working out for the good. I can't imagine why or what, like this afternoon, and I wasn't even going to say anything, but I disrespected my table saw today for the last time because I'm never going to disrespect my table saw again. <laughs> and that's, so you end up getting, you know, why did this happen? I don't know, but it's going to turn out for the good. Fortunately, I could still hold a guitar pick. But, um, you know, everything works out for us if we're, if we're called to his purposes and if we're walking in that and if we love God. You know, and even before we loved the Lord, he was working in our lives. Even when we were still his enemies, the Bible says, before coming to the Lord, you're his enemy. You might not even think so. But um, it, it's certainly uh, working out for our good, whatever we're going through. God means it for good, and especially for us who are bound for heaven. The most important things in this life are the things that prepare us for the kingdom to come. Forgiveness is the most fundamental aspect of Christianity um, and salvation. It's the very nature of God. He is holy. He is full of love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. But because he is holy, and we are unholy sinners, he gave us all these things through Jesus Christ. If you look at Psalm 130, verses 1 through 5, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. And I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. You know, it says that there is forgiveness with God, that he may be feared. And that word there is that same as we talked about earlier, that astonishment. And it has a terror with it of awe, of reverence. Not a terror of shaking the knees and fear like that. Uh, but uh, uh, you see the forgiveness of the Lord and it actually causes you to fear the Lord. It just causes you to stand back in awe and stand back in astonishment at the forgiveness that he has. And we read it throughout the scriptures. Um, David has many psalms he wrote. Uh, this just being one of them because he has such a powerful love for us that he forgives. Acts 13, verse 38, just one verse. If you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it. When we preach, forgiveness is a big part of what we're talking about, if not the most important part about what we're talking about um, when we preach, when we share the gospel. Um, Acts 13, verse 38 well, it's just, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Now in context, you know, Paul is, is uh, uh, preaching to, where am I? Oh, Peter. No, and it is Barnabas and Saul. It's Paul who's preaching. And uh, he's teaching these guys, and he talks about David after he served his own generation, the will of God, fell asleep, buried with his fathers. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. That's Jesus. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And the reason? And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so again, talking to the Pharisees and the Jews about the law and how it is Jesus that, that saves and forgives um, you know, we, when we share the gospel f with the world, it's, it, it is for the forgiveness of sin. I mean, we can say, yeah, you get to go to heaven. But, you know, there's no, there's no heaven without sin being dealt with. The first thing that people need to hear when you're talking, sharing with them is you've you got to realize that you're a sinner. You have to understand that, that you need a Savior. I mean, why would they want to follow Jesus and and have anything to do with any of it if they didn't realize that they needed a Savior. They may believe that after you die, lights out, and there's nothing there. It's empty. Or they might believe that everybody goes to heaven, and it's all universal. It doesn't matter what you ever did in your life. Or they might believe that, you know, there's a certain amount of period of time that you're in some holding pattern, and until then, finally, after getting tested there, then you get to go to heaven. Well, not at all. We, we know that sin has to be dealt with you can't stand before holy God if you're still walking in sin and if the sin hasn't been dealt with. You know, um, it's the most essential part and aspect and, and from that comes heaven and eternal life. It's a result of that forgiveness. Now Jesus preached, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, Jesus preached forgiveness and he even established his deity by forgiving sin and by healing. It wasn't just miracles that proved he, who he was, and the Pharisees knew it. 
in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, um, Jesus had healed, um, or was about to heal. He had cleansed the lepers and, and all in chapter 1. And, um, and again, it says, he entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive him and not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And they came to him bringing a paralytic man who was carried by four men. When they could not come near to him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about things in your heart, these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise up and take your bed and walk? But that you know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Well, they said to themselves, these Pharisees, only God can forgive sins. Guess what? They're sitting in the presence of God. Jesus says, you know, Power to forgive sins. What about power to restore this paralytic that you've all seen your whole lives who is paralyzed? Rise up, take your bread. Immediately he rose up and took the bed and went out in the presence of them all. So all were amazed and glorified God, saying we never saw anything like this. You know, they didn't, only God can forgive sins. Well, guess what, guys? That's who you're sitting amongst right now to the Pharisees. And then if you go to the next chapter, verse 10 and 11, it says, um, you know, he had healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, you are the Son of God. And then if you skip down to verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he has cast out demons. And so he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided again? You know, just common sense. It's funny how things just seem to make sense. You can't just use Satan to cast out Satan. That's a kingdom divided against itself. And that kind of kingdom is not going to stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself, it's divided. He cannot stand, but has an end. In other words, it's over. And no one who can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all the sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Well, what power did Jesus have? Well, first of all, Jesus was God with the Father from all eternity. But he also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, forgives sins and heals this, uh, this man. And they say that it's a devil. Well, that's blasphemy. 
you know, it brings up the question, you know, is unbelief, uh, you know, unforgivable? It is really the only sin that cannot be forgiven, is unbelief. He had, you know, those that blaspheme against the Holy Ghost have never forgiveness, he says, but it's a danger of eternal damnation. If forgiveness is to lift up, support someone, endure, bear them up, and carry it off them, take away their sin, well, then only Jesus can do this. Only he can be the one. And for them to dis- deny this testimony of who he is, and they glorified God, they even said within themselves, only God can do this, and then he did it. And so they are uh, denying that testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding who Jesus is, and that leaves you with no forgiveness. Your sin remains, and death and judgment go with that. There is a sin that is unforgivable, and that is unbelief. The Bible says all other sins can be forgiven, and what Jesus says, except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit's working in all of us to draw us to himself, and he's the one that works into people who would uh, draw them to Jesus. And if they deny it, if they push it away, if they deny who Jesus is, there's nothing left. There's no forgiveness of sin for that. Sin remains. Acts 26, when we are sharing, there's a few reasons why we do the things that we do and the say the things that we say. And, you know, God uses us, whatever situation we find ourselves in you know whatever our personalities are is what I mean whatever our the faces we got the bodies the Lord gave us you know whatever it is the jobs he gave us the places we find ourselves you know we're all different and God uses us all differently but some of the key points and why it's important is is verses 15 through 18 when Paul was recounting his conversion uh, and talking about his earlier life in chapter 26, you know, he talks about when the Lord called him out. And uh, verse 15, So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. And I'm going to deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So to minister, Jesus tells them exactly what we're to talk about when we're sharing the gospel. To minister is, is a service. It's not a feather in your cap or recruiting, you know, people to your denomination or your faith or whatever it is. You're not recruiting anybody. The Lord, you're there to serve them and minister them, bringing them the gospel. He says to be a witness, to be a witness of the things we've seen God do and the things that he will show us in his word and also in our lives. You know, we have a testimony. Every one of us has a testimony of what God did in our lives, that things only God can do. Things that, you know, you can tell people. No, this is what God did to me. I don't care whether you believe it or not. I know what God has done. And he says to be a witness. He's done in our lives, shows us the truth in his word. 
And verse 17 keeps us from those who desire to do harm against us, those who are sent to reach with the gospel. Certainly there is going to be persecution. And um, when we're honestly intending to take the good news uh, to the world, and it says he will keep us and deliver us. But notice he says um, he opens their eyes. Only the Holy Spirit can work in the hearts of people. You know, Paul says he does what he can to persuade men, and that's something we can certainly do the best, as much as we can to persuade. But only the excuse me, only the the Holy Spirit is going to be able to to open their eyes. And then it says to turn them from darkness to the light. Now the world walks in their own desires, and they're happy to stay in that dark as long as they can. Well, what's the Lord do? Or what what the Lord do with any of us? Well, he makes that a very uncomfortable place to be. He, he, if he's working with us, if he loves us, he's going to make walking in sin a real drag. I mean, you, for an example, what do you get the day after you had have too, too much to drink? You get a big old hangover. You get a big old headache. You're reaping what you sow, but you're also realizing, you know, you don't have to do this. Save yourself the whole morning the next day and, and, or whatever it takes for people to get over that. Just got like God brought us to an emptiness and a hunger for something better. He makes them aware. So he turns them from darkness. He turns them to light. And he makes them aware of their emptiness. And only he can put that ache in their heart. Because, you know, we're just people. And they can look at us and go, well, you're just a man. They can say, oh, yeah, what about, you know, all these guys that call themselves Christians and all they want to do is get your wallet and stuff. Well, they're out there, and that's true what they're saying. It's a real misrepresentation of the Lord and the world can see all that so what's going to change them when we share the Lord with them he's putting that ache in their heart that emptiness in their heart then we've got the answer we can say you know who the Savior is you know who can deliver you from those sins that keep on you know doing you the harm and putting you in this situation you know the world cannot do that and sin cannot ever satisfy that ache and then it says, he turns us from the power of Satan unto God. Well, what is Satan's power? Now, the word power has a couple of meanings, uh, different words used for that word power in the Greek. One is called dynamis, which we get the word dynamite from. And that's just pure power, um, physical ability, inherent power, power residing in a thing or virtue of its nature, of a person, a thing that exhorts, just that, that power there. Um, Satan does not have dynamis. He does not have that power. He's, his teeth are gone. As soon as Jesus died on the cross and rose from the death, he's been defeated. He's got all kinds of bark, and even his gums are mushy. He can't even gum you to death. So there's nothing in him that has dynamis. Now, there's a certain amount of that that God hands him. When the Antichrist comes, he's going to be able to do things, but it's actually a show. It's not really a power. And uh, if, you, if you study that carefully. Um, but he does not have, it's, he's been defeated. Now, Romans 8.38, real quick, if you want to just read the one verse or I'll read it for you. Um, uh, Romans 8.38, just concerning uh, the devil. For now I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor any height, nor depth, nor other created thing 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He does not have any power that can do that to you. In, in Thess, uh, 2 Thessalonians, um, if you'd like to go there, and that's what I was talking about a little bit earlier, when uh, the Antichrist will come, 2 verse 9, says the coming uh, of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, and it says here, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Well, just so I'm not, you know, I'm not, I want to be true to what the scripture says. That word there is, in fact, dunamis, but it has to do with just the ability to puff up a sign, just the ability to, to tell a bunch of lies, and the kind of power that's, that comes with those lies. So, uh, that word, that's really the only place in the New Testament where that word is used for Satan to have any kind of power is when he's able to, to puff something up and make it look real big, big signs and wonders, and to tell lies. You know, it's basically that word there, signs, means a token and, uh, you know, a falsehood. Whatever, you know, something is uh, lying wonders, it says, falsehood, whatever is not what it seems to be, perverse, impious, deceitful precepts. But Satan does have a power. It's called exousia. Now, the power, that Greek word for exousia there um, for power, is really just the power to choose. Just like you and I have that autonomy, that power, that liberty to do as one pleases. Now, he doesn't have the ability to do as he pleases beyond what God allows him, as we read in the book of Job. But, you know, that, that ability or that strength uh, which somebody has where they where they have that choice, and they might have some authority, and you know Satan has certain authorities that that uh, you know principalities and powers is what how Paul describes it, and all that. If you want to turn to eight, uh, Acts twenty six, be making our way here along the stretch, uh, and that's where we were actually. So back to verse eighteen. One of the things that um, we talked about being a minister, talked about being a witness, opening, the Lord opens their eyes, he turns them from evil, and now he turns them from the power of Satan unto God. And, um, you know, that, that free will, he turns them from that, Satan's will over their lives, to, by our own free will, to the Lord. Um, but then it says in 18, it says, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, kind of where I was getting to with all this, um, and an inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in Jesus. Now, Ephesians 1, 7, you don't have to turn there, it says, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins, and it's according to the richness of it, his grace, it says. It's not according to anything that we have tried to accomplish on ourselves and any works that we have done. If you want to turn to Colossians 3, and we'll just make our way through these last few verses. It's according to the riches of his grace. In Colossians 3, 12 through 13, <clears throat> what are we supposed to respond like? And what is in us now as we've you know, received the Lord and his Holy Spirit dwells in us? It says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Now, he talks about it, 
putting on because it's not something you have to buy. It's not something you have to strive. It's not something you have to make for yourself. It's something that you take and put on because God's provided it for you. So put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, kind of where we started out tonight, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, there's no comparison between our sin and anybody else's. Um, and there's certainly no comparison between something somebody else might have done to you and all of your own sin that God knows about. We talked about it earlier. You know, he's the only one that can judge. But the reason he gives right there, he says, you know, because he forgave us. You know, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. So to the, to the extent that you want to look over your own life and consider the things that God has forgiven you for, you know, if you can find something that somebody else is doing to you that's worse than that, well, maybe you need to consider what, uh, you know, even hatred is murder. You know, so just keep it in mind that as the Lord has forgiven us is how we to look and forgive others. Luke 6, if you want to turn there. And this is the, the real example of all of this. And, uh, and we'll go into Luke 7 after this, but in verse 37 of Luke 6, going back to what we just said, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And then he goes on in, in the next chapter, verses 36 through 50, in chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Well, now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who this, or what manner of woman this is and you know, who's touching him. Well, for she's a sinner. Well, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, this being the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And so he said, Teacher, say it. Well, there is a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with them with which to pay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose, the one whom forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to, her, or, and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins like they were before? And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, it's interesting. The worst of the sinners tend to be the ones that really know how much Jesus can forgive. You know, and people that we look on in society and, you know, just all the things that you ever think about in, in any kind of society where people are categorized in one way or another and, and, or they're, they're uh, given rewards in one way or another and, and, and so forth just for all of their, their behavior. And, and certainly you will reap what you sow. But when it comes to meeting up with Jesus, there's not a single one of us that can say that we haven't been forgiven much and we love much. You know, the example here isn't the fact that Simon was forgiven little. The example is that we all have been forgiven much. And um, so Jesus says, you know, look and uh, how much this woman loves because of how much she's been forgiven. And so the judge not. We don't know how to judge on some circumstances. And certainly there's laws of the land and certainly you reap what you sow and certainly certain sins are going to put you behind bars in this culture, in any culture, in any, any society. Um, and that's really the way it should be. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to forgiving sins. Ephesians 4, I've got just a few more. How are we supposed to deal with all this? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a constant thing where you're just always forgiving people if you walk in kindness. Be tender-hearted. It's going to be a natural part of who you are and what your life is. In verse 25, Therefore, putting away all lying, well, that's a good start, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, okay, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So if you are, then deal with it. Uh, nor give place to the devil, which is what you'd be doing if you don't deal with it. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who has the need. And so instead of stealing, you know, get a job to the point where you can now give to those who might want to steal because they're poor and don't have anything, don't have what they need. You know, and so he says, um, where was I? 25. So let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearers. And it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, that's kind of what's going to happen if some of these things are, you know, if you continue to walk in this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And I think we read through this few weeks back, you know, that if you're going to be uh, angry about something, if you're going to have malice about something, have malice about putting away your sin. Have malice about, you know, stop being bitter. You know, it's grieving the Holy Spirit. With that kind of, with that kind of uh, importance, you know, that's how important it is with that kind of malice. Put away these things because it's grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, be kind to one another. And, um, so verse 32, tender-hearted and forgiving one another, even as God also forgave you. And there is it again, forgiving as he forgave us. That's your standard. Um, notice when we're not gracious, it grieves the Holy Spirit. You know, 
Matthew 6, verse 9 through 15. There's just so many examples that add such different character to the whole subject of forgiveness. I'd just like to hit them all for you, or at least as many as we can without being redundant. Um, but uh, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15 it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they uh, light a lamp and put it. Am I in the wrong chapter? Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking sooner or later this is going to resolve and it did not. Okay, so, well, it's still good. It's all good stuff. Let your light shine. Um, so, yes, um, you can throw something at me, you know, if I'm not seeing. Um, but uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 9. So the Lord's Prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, so I hate to rattle this off because so many people have rattled it off, myself included, for my entire childhood. Um, and it's not something to be rattled off. It's, a, it's an example of a prayer. Because he says, after this manner, therefore pray. Not repeating it by rote, you know. In this manner, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give God the glory. He's the Holy One. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Indeed, we desire that. Give us this day our daily bread because we have our daily needs and only he provides like he provides for the birds of the air. He loves us so much more. How much more us. But then he says, and forgive us our debts. Amen. As we forgive our debtors. Now, some might say that this is a requirement. That unless you forgive everybody your debts, you're never going to be forgiven. And, well, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And you're going to be in purgatory until you figure out how to forgive other debts or what? No, if you have Jesus and he's your savior... The only thing that's going to happen here is you're going to sit and stew on this and you're not going to have any peace that comes from knowing your sins are forgiven. If you, it says, you know, if, if uh, even as we forgive our debtors, you know, we're asking the Lord to do that, uh, to forgive us our debts and do it as we forgive our debtors. So it has a lot more to do with what we end up being like because of it, as opposed to, you know, it's not something where you don't, you're not saved. If, you, if you're holding this grudge, you're just the one that's going to end up sitting being chewed up by it. You're, not, you're the one that's going to be tossing and turning. You're the one that's going to end up, you know, wrestling with it. The other guy probably doesn't even know you got anything against him. Um, so it's an important thing to know that it's as he forgave us. You know, do, uh, do not let us in temptation deliver us from the evil one. And for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And, um, you know, the reasons forgiveness. He says, therefore, you know, 
If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your your Father forgive you your trespasses. Well, like we talked about earlier, there's only one unforgivable sin, and that's unbelief. That's that blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What he's sitting there saying is, how are you going to give that, take that burden like Joseph wept, knowing that he could take this burden off his brothers and just say, no, God meant it. You know, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You know, and he provided for them. No, he comforted them. He, he told them that, that uh, I haven't even been thinking about it. I haven't even been worried about it. Forget about it. You know, in such a way so that he took their burden off of them. Even so, you know, um, he says, that your Father in heaven, neither will he forgive your trespasses. And you can take apart the words in the etymology and all that if you want, but the bottom line is that there is only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and it's not unforgiveness, as this seems to say. He's talking about trespasses and all. But... Um, if you want to go to the next one is Matthew 18, a few pages to the, to the right, 21 through 35. It's a long stretch. Um, it's one of our last passages here. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I, you know, my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times, and, uh, or up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, that the payment be made. And his servant therefore fell down before him and... and saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him his debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Owed him a hundred denarii, yeah. And he, he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you all. And he would not, but went out and threw him into prison and that he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they very, were very grieved. And it's funny how the people around you, if they see that you're just not forgiving somebody and all you can do is continue to you know, say what you want to say under your breath about them or, or talk to other people about them and, and all that, his fellow servants said, or it says that they were very grieved by this guy that wouldn't forgive. And they came and told their master and all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You know, the unforgiving servant ended up realizing that's that's who we are we're christians you know we're we're we serve the lord the lord's a forgiving god we're sitting here because our sins have been forgiven because we put our trust in him why is it we would want to keep tabs and tally up somebody else's sins you know at, at uh, 
And God's very serious about it. Because forgiveness is the, is the center of the gospel. Our sins have been dealt with by him. And that's very serious to God. Why he would say that neither will your sins be forgiven you. Well, that's how important it is. That's how central to the gospel it is that we forgive one another. You know, and finally, back in, if you want to turn to Hebrews um, chapter 11. And I'll just read back in Genesis it says, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. He lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's children to the third generation of Manasseh's kids and Joseph and all, said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Keep that in mind. I, Joseph knew what was coming. God told Abraham and uh, Isaac, passed it on down. Jacob passed it on down. They will be coming out of that land. And so Joseph took an oath from those guys to say, when you carry me up my bones from here, when you return to the land, Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And for 400 years, they took care of that coffin because they did bring him back up, as we'll see in the next few books of the Bible if the Lord tarries. But it's interesting, in Hebrews 11:22. The only thing said about Joseph being the example that Paul has for us of what faith is, is this, that when he was dying, he made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, you know, Abraham's faith and how he obeyed God, sacrificed Isaac and all, and, and all these uh, in Hebrews 11, uh, Moses and, and uh, the patriarchs and so forth. But here's Joseph. All he does is say, all right, God said he was going to take us up out of here. Therefore, I'm giving you instructions because I know that God's going to accomplish this thing. He had the faith, and that was the example of faith. Take up my bones and bury me up there in the land when you come because you will. And that was faith. And uh, he believed God. You know, um, we have the same thing, really. Um, I don't have any desire to anybody to keep my bones and do anything. You know, what I'm saying is that we all, as believers, we're pointing to that same thing, the promised land. We have the faith to be able to say to those that we're wit witnessing to that, you know, we are going to be brought up and we're going to be with the Lord. He's promised it. He said it's going to happen. He is going to take us, and he did deliver us out of our sins, the metaphorically speaking of the land of Egypt, you know, the slavery that we were in uh, our sins to and the slavery that they were in, in Egypt, and he brought them up out into the promised land. And that example he gives as faith for us that when Joseph was dying. And so that's our example of faith to the world. We're going to heaven, and what a glorious thing. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I just pray again that you would use it to uh, build us up and to strengthen us, to give us courage to do the things that you've called us to do and to just have uh, a peaceable testimony of witnessing and sharing and giving the gospel as you've commanded us to do. And Lord, as we continue to... Uh, just walk in the walk that you've given each one of us. It's always different, but Lord, there's still the one Lord and Savior that we point to, 
for why we do the things we do. I just pray that you'd give us that, that strength and courage to do that when we're walking in this world. And so we just lift everything up to you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.